And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Tachlis, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So, Uri, did you get any interesting feedback about the Ben Greenfield episode? Um, yeah, I got a bunch of positive feedback. Um, Ben's a very captivating, interesting guy, and um, my sister particularly enjoyed it. <laughs> I gave her a shout-out. He was a permanent special guest on her uh, radio show. Um, so, yeah, I got some good stuff. What about mm-hmm. you? Yeah, I think it's really cool. I, I like even like re, you know as we we're editing and re- listening to it, just thinking about the way in which he thinks about ritual. I think like gave me sort of like a, a refreshed. You know, you don't hear talk like that from Orthodox rabbis enough, and it made me really excited, just on a personal level. And then you know we got a lot of really exciting feedback. Um, one person actually wrote something that made us think a little bit. Uh, she wrote she's a her her name's Rachel. She's a friend of the pod, and she wrote that. The conversation that we had about Ben's sensitivity to community members, you know, as the rabbi of a community, he's trying a little bit, he doesn't want to alienate anyone. You know, people Mm -hmm. make a strong commitment when they join a shul. And even if he thinks about things differently than them, he doesn't want them to feel like they are not fully welcome and fully a part of the community. And uh, in hearing that, Rachel wrote to us that it hit really close to home. And she said, and, and I'll quote her directly, she was talking about, quote, making the commitment to a community, buying a house, but not always feeling comfortable with the direction the rabbi is taking the shul. And she added, I think we started putting energy into a shul that we thought would be more liberal, but the rabbi has started taking more conservative stances. And that's the end of her quote. And I think that felt really powerful to me because I think, at least on my end, I often think of it the other way around. Like, um, like for for example, for Ben and for some of the examples he was bringing, the rabbi was a little bit more liberal than the community, and it was like ah, like I want to be their leader, but I also don't want to alienate people, and but I feel like I have to take a moral stance to a certain degree. But she was talking about the other direction. Clearly, right. her rabbi also thinks that he has to take a moral stance on some things, but then she was feeling kind of on the outside a little right. bit. I mean, I'd be curious what the issues are. Of course, and, yeah, uh, it might be an interesting discussion in itself. But but yeah, it's a tough tough place to be. Yeah. So speaking of uh, rabbis and rabbinic leadership, let's welcome this week's very special guest, Rabbi Daniel Atwood. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, Many of you have probably heard Daniel's name. We actually have discussed Daniel a few times Mm -hmm. on the podcast, along with the rest of the Orthodox world. I feel like (laughs) I came up once or twice. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Local celebrity here. Um, Now he gets to set the record straight. (laughs) (laughs) Finally. So just to give a little bit about Daniel's background, Rabbi Daniel Atwood was ordained by Rabbi Daniel Landy's, another Rabbi Daniel, non-denominational smicha program, Yashrut, last year after studies in Yeshiva Chovei Torah and Yeshiva University. He is currently the director of the Jewish Coalition on Criminal Justice Reform at the JCRC of New York and a scholar on LGBTQ rights in the Jewish community. Daniel lives in Washington Heights with his husband, Judah Gavant, an alumnus of Israel, KBY, and YU, who works as a disability rights advocate and a community organizer in Upper Manhattan. So, Daniel, thank you so, so much for joining us. We're really excited for this yes, conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. So, Daniel, there's obviously a lot of interesting things about you, but I think one of the reasons why, let's say it this way, if you Google you, uh, probably the first... 50 or so things that show up are all related to a pretty um, important incident that happened uh, maybe six months ago, one that we covered extensively on this podcast. And I think what we want to do just to start us off is for you to kind of summarize what happened. You were a student at you were in your last year, you were meant to get smicha, and you did not. We don't, let me also just clarify, we don't want to have... 
a conversation about like we don't want to have a debate you know like Uri wasn't there I wasn't there we don't have you know this isn't a conversation in which kind of everyone's sitting and laying out their perspectives we just want to hear from you we want to understand kind of what you experienced and what you went through and we want to hear your perspective Sure. Um, and I'll just mention, it's hard to believe with the news cycle, but that was actually almost a full year ago yeah, that, that story wow. came out. It was a lot more I than know, things, things move very quickly. And, right. And I, I mean, I guess lose. it's February. Yeah, that it is came out in March, crazy. So yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What a year it's been. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Reflections. Yeah. So as, as you mentioned in in my bio, um, I was a student at Yeshiva Chavavei Torah. Um, I was there for three and three quarter years mm-hmm. and then um, was, was denied ordination and ended up getting ordained uh, by Rabbi Landis. And I came out as gay during, well, it was really during my first year mm-hmm. as a student at Chavavei. It's a four-year program. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when I started. It was right after I graduated from YU. Um, and it was the same summer, that summer between college and when I started rabbinical school was when actually the Supreme Court passed marriage equality in Mm -hmm. 2015. Um, and there was a lot of good feeling in the air around LGBT stuff. Um, and it started to get to me. I actually remember Rabbi Ari Hart, who, who worked at YCT and HIR, the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale at the time. Uh, posted on Facebook, Mazel Tov America, um, <laughs> Interesting. when uh, right after that passed. And uh, Ben Greenfield also posted, uh, who was a student there at the time, posted something that was I know was discussed on previous episode. There was a lot of good feeling around LGBT stuff, both in America. Barack Obama was president. It was a different time. <laughs> and, and in the Jewish community and the Orthodox community. And a lot of that started to get to me personally. It was sort of an issue that had always been inside of me, but something that I very much suppressed, had very much kept down for a long time. Grew up in a fairly standard, modern Orthodox community, not one that was super right-wing, but also in a time where these things were not talked about. Um, so that so that summer, during my first year of rabbinical schools, when I started to come out, um, totally coincidentally, not, you know, wasn't doing it despite YCT or anything. Um, but I was the first gay student they had, and I made a decision that I wanted to come out and I wanted to be out because being out was more important to me. Being able to live my life after I was uh, 23 or so at the time, 24, after 20 something years of keeping that suppressed, being out was more important to me. And if they would tell me to leave, so they would tell me to leave, but I had to be out. So I came out to them. It was a whole process. Um, it was not a yes or no answer as, uh, you know, maybe I guess I was young. Perhaps I was being naive and thinking it would be like, all right, yes or no, <laughs> can I stay? Um, it really was there were a lot of people who had to come, who had a lot of different thought processes. Um, I mean, it's not Rabbi Lopatin, who was the president at the time, um, was a huge, and still is a huge ally and, and huge supporter of mine. Uh, but there were definitely some more conservative voices within the yeshiva. Um, but it was decided that, okay, you can stay and, and you'll get smicha after 
much back and forth. And I'll talk a little bit about my time in rabbinical school, because it's sort of what happened in between year one and year four is also interesting. Do you mind if we just take a step back for a second? Um, What was your experience at YU like? So I know there's been a lot of conversation about YU. I actually had a pretty good experience at YU. It's sort of, it was... Because like it you wasn't, hate, you, a, you hate to say that you had a positive. I don't experience. want. No, I I have a lot of respect for uh-huh. the work that the activists there are doing now, and it's really important mm-hmm. the, the visibility they're looking for. It sort of wasn't on the radar at YU at the time, mm. or it had been previously, right. and then it sort of took a back burner. And I was a lot of my friends were more liberally inclined, mm-hmm. so even though I wasn't really out, I was around people who were very accepting and. I never felt, I can't remember a time where I ever was, like, attacked, Mm. where I, like, I knew there were rabbis who were homophobic, but I just, like, didn't take their classes, Mm -hmm. so I never, like, I don't ever had experience of, of, like, something bad happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so my experience at YU actually was pretty good. I I had a good time there. Okay, that's Uh, nice to hear. Yeah, it's, uh, maybe it would be different if I were there today because mm-hmm. right. I, I could talk, I can I mean, talk you also more about this. Out. I think it's a different time now that we're That's in. also definitely true. We're in a different time. Um, but going back to yeah, my time in, in YCT, um, nobody knew what it meant to have a gay student at YCT. So even though I was there, I was allowed to be there, we hadn't really processed how or had any conversations around what that would mean for, for the school. So one example, we learn about what they like to call life cycles in, class, in, in YCT. So that's a mm-hmm. broad curriculum about marriage and divorce and death. Both, you know, there's the morning seder, the morning learning, which is a traditional halachic legal learning. And then we have sort of pastoral classes, classes that are not about the laws, but more about dealing with issues as pastors um, in practical matters. Um, and and I sort of and I remember requesting. I was like, well, and and there was like one day that was like a special topic on LGBT and was going to be discussed in today's afternoon pastoral counseling this was counseling after class. You came out. Yeah, this was uh-huh. my second or third okay. year. Um, and I said, you know, why don't we learn about this in morning seder? Why don't we learn about these issues during the the time when we're learning the the scholarly material, mm-hmm. not just the pastoral material mm-hmm. and how to relate to people one-on-one and it's it wasn't like there wasn't even there wasn't a curriculum around it nobody the Rosh Hashiva didn't know Rabbi uh, uh, Linzer like didn't know I think just right. what to do with that it's uh, hard it's hard being the first yeah. I mean I'm sure you know this but like <laughs> yeah. you know the, the first round is always so rocky yeah it's rocky and and you know, it's like uh, rabbis, like they were so good at having conversations mm-hmm. about gay people and they've never had that conversation. The way they would do it is they'd have like a panel of, you know, people from JQI or something. Mm-hmm. And then everyone would leave and there would be a, you know, a conversation, a class-wide conversation. Okay, what did we think of that? Um, and then having me in the room was such a, it, it threw everything off mm-hmm. so much because they, like some of them were my 
close friends and classmates, and they're talking about me, but they're also talking about an issue, but they know I'm there. And I didn't have anyone to take cues from. Like, there was no one sort of leading the way of how exactly we're going to you know, forge a path forward mm-hmm. on LGBT issues or gay issues at YCT. So I was just sort of there, but it wasn't really, there was no work done on it. It was just, I was there, mm-hmm. um, which I would not recommend as a mm. policy going forward. <laughs> okay, so Uri, when we set up our rabbinical school, we're going to do things differently. <laughs> I think it actually happens to a lot of schools. We'll hire you to be a consultant. <laughs> I'd be happy Perfect. to. Perfect. Um, it happens to a lot of schools and shuls and, and Jewish institutions where they don't think about an issue until it slaps right. them across the face. Mm-hmm. So they never thought about, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine like YCT, like build itself as a liberal place. It's already 2000 in the mid 2000s. Like <laughs> they've been around for 15 years. It was almost like it was about time that a gay person was there. Um, but really no one wants to have to bother to have to do the difficult and sometimes uncomfortable work until you have to. And I think that happens a lot of the time. Yeah. And I think that's that's something now, something I definitely learned from this whole episode is that, you know, it's it like you got to be proactive. Mm-hmm. And no, I know no one's going to listen because no institution wants to be proactive. Right. That's the hard. Like, well, they it's want so to, but difficult. It's just, like, they, they want to, but no one has the time. Right. But like, because then it's always a crisis. Yeah. Then there's always a human expense because it's the first person who's there. Right. Has to. Has well, to look bear at the why you now. Why you is like, oh, we're trying to avoid it. We're trying to avoid it. We're trying to avoid it. And now they're getting sued. And it's like, <laughs> we could have done this so differently. But it, it's really hard when, you know, people don't know what to do and they're confronted with a really difficult situation in front of them. Yeah. And they haven't put in the work beforehand. Yeah, put in, and, and there wasn't a lot of discussion over what my life was supposed to look like, my personal life. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so when you did, like when you had an LGBTQ panel and when you had these discussions after, was it talking about like how, like how, what, what did the conversations look like? So there's very much a feeling of there's a difference between how a rabbi is supposed to act and how a mm. sort of, no offense, regular person is supposed <laughs> to act. Rude. <laughs> and, you know, some things that we might be okay with, uh, a, a lay person, mm-hmm. that's the word, <laughs> doing, um, you know, that doesn't mean at all that that's okay for the rabbi, um, which is interesting because from a halachic point of view, there's no actual difference. Right. That's that more of a policy mm-hmm. uh, point of view. Okay, so what ended up happening was, you know, I, I long story short, I met a wonderful guy <laughs> who lived on my block. Um, we ended up getting engaged last October, mm-hmm. um, October 2018. And then there wasn't actually much conversation about it um, until March 2019, about one year ago, mm-hmm. uh, when Rabbi Dove Linzer, who has had ascended to the position of president of YCT after Rabbi LePatton had left, pulled me aside one day and, and told me that um, they he had decided that I he could not ordain me. Mm-hmm. Did he say it was related to the engagement? It was related to. I th- I th- it's you know the it, the whole thing was very murky at the time, and I think it was related to the engagement. 
Um, I think that put a level of being out that he was uncomfortable with. There was also never a discussion of like, which is weird because, you know, they knew I was dating someone. Judah had come to YCT Shabbatones. Judah, you know, I was the intern at a shul with a YCT rabbi and Judah came with me for Shabbos. Mm. So it was never like a secret Mm -hmm. that Judah and I were together. There was never any, I was never hiding anything from them. Uh, But we never really talked about like, what would it mean for me to get married? Like what would happen when I want to get married? Um, I think that was something perhaps they were not ready for. Um, Were uh, you waiting for them to bring that up or did you ever consider broaching that subject just to test the waters to ask them or ask Rabbi Linzer what I, that I would look like. I think this is the part of the struggle was there was no clear direction mm-hmm. to take. So, you know, there, there have been things that, you know, I had spoken on many events. Like I was out publicly as well. Like mm-hmm. if you would check my Facebook, I see what I was up to. Like sp- spoke at many I spoke at like an SL conference and other JQY events, and I was on the uh, young leadership board of JQY. Uh, so it was never a secret what was going on in my life. Um, and the decision to get engaged, I mean, it, it felt like a natural, like we were two religious people in love and wanted to get married. And we figured we were definitely going to get married after I graduated. Um, to make things easier for YCT. Um, so we actually put off, I mean, we had been together for about th- three and a half years by the time we got married, um, which is a little bit longer than the average in the Orthodox uh, community. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided, but we wanted to formalize our relationship in right. order to have that commitment to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, what ended up happening was things sort of spiraled out of control um, there was, I know there was a lot of pressure from the right and, and I mean, I think Rabbi Linzer has been open about this. Um, and he can correct me if, if I'm wrong, that he also had wanted to take YCT in a different direction than Rabbi Lopatin had, bring, had brought it down. Um, he very much, you know, was looking to appeal to the more traditional modern Orthodox community. They dropped the term open Orthodox at some point and, Oh, that was a Ray Linzer? I thought that was Rabbi Lopatin. That Lepatin. was a, a, a Rabbi Lopatin was there. I'm not really sure where that decision actually mm-hmm. came from. Um, but I, I, I think he has been open about the right. fact that they're trying to course correct for what they saw Different was a, going a little bit more left than they So it seems to more you that this, the kind of the, the episode, as you called it, with you was almost like reflective of a larger change that Jove was kind of looking to, to implement? Yeah, I think we don't see them at the forefront of so many issues in a way that I think we used to. Oh, interesting. Um, I mean, again, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see them really on the forefront uh, talking about things like partnership minions, where they very much, they used to be published, they published a, a book of two vote in my first year, mm-hmm. you know, in support of partnership minions. Um, minions were women lead part of the service um even lgbt stuff i haven't i mean <laughs> since my episode i haven't seen anything come out um, and i think they've been really trying to get into 
uh, modern Orthodox shuls more. Mm-hmm. A lot of their graduates are working in, in schools or Hillel's. I think they've been trying mm-hmm. to get back into that. It's sort of like what we were saying about YU earlier. When there's a move in one way, there's always going to be backlash. a backlash and a pushback. And, and that's sort of how society has gone. If you think about Stone, the Stonewall Uprising happened in 1969 when uh, a, a group of LGBT people were uh, the, a bar uh, in the village was raided by the police because it was illegal at the time mm-hmm. for men to be dressed like women and gay activity, like these like weird laws. Um, and they raided the bar and, and the uh, patrons at the bar, the LGBT patrons, revolted against the police and it led to days of rioting in, the, in Greenwich Village. Um, by the LGBT community and sort of kicked off, is seen as kicking off the modern gay rights movement. The great gay pride parade started a year after that. Last year was the 50th anniversary of that. Uh, Sort of the big moment for the gay rights movement in America. But a lot of gay people were not on board with that. Uh, There was a group called the Mattachine Society, um, which was a you know, one of the big gay groups in uh, in America was very opposed to the uprising because, you know, this is going to lead to a backlash. And it did. In some ways, it was easier to be a gay person in America in the 30s and 40s and 50s Under the radar. than it was in the 60s hmm. and 70s and 80s because there weren't so many anti-gay... There were anti-gay laws on the books, but it, it was very much under the radar. And there was, you know, the Defense of Marriage Act wasn't passed until the 90s. Right. It wasn't passed in the 1920s or the 1950s because no one was talking about it. So there was no need to, to pass an act, Defense of Marriage Act, which banned uh, same-sex marriage because no one was thinking about it. Right. I think that's what happened when we, when we talk about my experience at YU. There wasn't much of a backlash because there wasn't much going on. In mm-hmm. some ways, it wasn't that hard because, I mean, what was hard is was that I was never affirmed, but I was also never actively attacked. Mm-hmm. And now we're at a time where, and good for them, the students there are demanding more rights and more mm-hmm. visibility, um, which is leading to more of a backlash on the part of the administration. Mm-hmm. So, Daniel, let me um, ask you, um, what brought you to... YCT in the first place. So let's just yeah. say rabbinic school. When did you know you wanted to be a rabbi? What was the process there? I think there was always a part of me that was just interested in, in Jewish learning and Jewish leadership from a young age. I was always into into going to shul and learning Torah mm-hmm. and had leadership uh, positions in my various community, mm-hmm. you know, li- related things as a teenager and whatnot. And, and I went to YU, which is a Jewish college, and and felt like being a rabbi was something that, that called me and that I had a voice and that I had messages I wanted to share with the world and, mm-hmm. and lead. And that's what brought me into rabbinic school in general. And, and YCT I saw as a, a progression of my worldview, my hashkafa at the time of being that open orthodox, that liberal orthodox perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to ask a follow-up question to that, and I'm I'm trying to be very sensitive because I understand that this can be an offensive question. So the way I'm going to phrase it is, I'm sure you get asked a lot, what is your emotional response and what is your actual response when somebody says to you, why 
choose to be an Orthodox rabbi? Why go to an Orthodox institution when you knew or should have known or like, let's say retroactively because you weren't out at the time? Um, you know, if they don't want you, why do you want them? And again, that's sort of like I'm asking you what your thoughts are, even just about the question, as opposed to just asking it to you directly. You know what I mean? Oh, but I also want the answer to the question. But also, yes. <laughs> Get it all. But- my thoughts about the question. Well, let me answer yeah, the answer question however first. you want. Sorry. <laughs> That's easier, I think. Um, well, it wasn't clear to me at the time that they didn't want me. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of good feeling in 2015 around gay people in the Orthodox community. Mm. Um, Rabbi Lopatin was very supportive, and I mentioned Rabbi Hart, who was the... Um, director of recruiting and admissions, I think it was at YCT, posted Mazal Tov America yeah. on the day that gay marriage passed. And I wasn't really seeing uh, uh, animosity towards gay people. I, it didn't seem like gay people aren't welcome here. So I thought maybe there was this niche of in the Orthodox, of Orthodox world. You know, uh-huh. you only need a small world. Right. Um, I don't know if I was totally wrong. I mean, there are definitely still a lot of gay people who make their life in the Orthodox world. I've sort of, I'd say, taken a step back from that just because what I went through was very traumatic. Right. And also it's it's getting in the way of my work in a way that is not interesting to me. So it's not interesting to me mm-hmm. to ask, you know, if I write something, I do writing, like, oh, but... Yeah, what you said is valid, but it's not orthodox. Like, I, okay, so to it's not permission orthodox. To say like, mm-hmm. I don't like if if you want to say it's not orthodox, say it's not orthodox. Like, that's not my concern in the world is uh, is labeling myself as orthodox. But there are a lot of people who are okay with you know some people can take it and they're okay being a, in a place where they're not fully accepted. Mm-hmm. So, do you mind my asking how you identify now religiously? I, you know, it's a traditional, religious, unaffiliated. I mean, <laughs> I have a big privilege from. in from exactly. <laughs> I have a big privilege that I live in New York and and can sort of go to a. Uh, I'm a member of the Fort Tryon Jewish Center, which is you know I feel like is culturally very orthodox, mm. but it's egalitarian and LGBT people are a hundred percent welcome. But a lot of my friends are orthodox, and I still sort of go about the world in an orthodox way. Just, that makes sense. Yeah, it's just a, it's an advantage living in New York. Also, so I guess I Daniel, along those lines, I, I guess one of the things that I'm wondering, and I'm sure everyone listening is wondering, is I guess it's been a year, almost a year, apparently. Um, and how has this incident really fundamentally affected? It sounds like you're you're you almost sound pretty mature when you talk about it. Like I would imagine uh, maybe in the month, if we interviewed you, you know, a month after the incident, there'd be more hurt or more anger. And it sounds like now you've, you've reflected a lot. And I'm wondering how this incident has really affected the way you think about all of these worlds, right? How you think about um, Chobabe or how you think about YU or how you think about the Orthodox world in general, because I think um, this obviously, like I think within Chobabe, right, obviously uh, what happened was incredibly traumatic. But as, as far as I understand, there also was a really strong, like, wave of support within the liberal orthodox community uh, within you know sub it's interesting club is pretty small but even within a small or um institution there's also you know people who came out strongly supporting you and i'm just wondering kind of where where you stand and how you think about these things because it's probably pretty confusing you know it was so interesting i became this 
celebrity, like mini celebrity yeah. overnight. Um, I was the topic of quite a few sermons. There was this reform temple in Houston where the rabbi talked about me on Kol Nidre oh, night wow. this past Yom Kippur. Someone sent me a video. That's so intense. Uh, I know. And Erev Pesach, the night before, day before Pesach, Susanna Heschel, who's mm-hmm. the daughter of Rabbi Heschel. So she invented a custom to put an orange on the Seder mm-hmm. plate. Um, representing feminism and LGBT rights, and it's something like you peel away the homophobia and mm. sexism. Something I'm not entirely something like that. And she posted on Facebook. This is a she's a pretty big philosopher, and like on <laughs> Erev Pesach, she put, posted on Facebook. This year, I'm thinking of Daniel Atwood mm. as I peel away the <laughs> layers of homophobia from my wow. orange at the Seder. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> so, <laughs> There were even some podcasts that talked about you. Yeah, there were these podcasts. (laughs) And, you know, that's really where the audience is. It's probably how most people heard about it. Yeah, I assume (laughs) so. Um, So I became this, like, celebrity. It's like now I meet people. I don't even need to – like, I say my name, and they're like, "Uh oh." Oh." (laughs) What's that like for you? It is strange. It's a strange – I mean, the media – I have a lot I could say about the media. I I think they weigh – I mean, it was an important story, but there was a, a lot of irresponsible reporting that occurred at the time. The, the The story got out extremely quickly. There was, you know, corrections upon corrections. Because the way it works is you got to be the first one right. on Facebook. Right. You have to break Because that's the link everyone clicks. So there were a lot of mistakes in the original reporting, and, and that was... And it got very personal. Like, people were debating on Facebook, uh, you know, my personal life and my life with Judah, who's my, yeah. like, he's... Poor Judah! Like, Nebuch. <laughs> he just, like, is just hanging out. I mean, there's a lot of... I, I think there was... There was really no consideration. This is where I'm going to come down a little bit harsh. There really was no consideration of the collateral damage that would come out of this. Um, You're saying, when you say harsh, you mean harsh about the media or harsh about Chovave? uh, More on on, on Chovave. Uh Um, I think there was just no consideration of my family, Mm -hmm. my like my parents, right. Judah, Judah's family, sort of being put through the ringer, both by Jove and the media, I should say, because the media also, I think, was very uh, irresponsible. I don't want to name names, but some some people reported very irresponsibly, mm-hmm. like really with facts that were not correct. And, and then they would just like, oh, we'll throw in a correction later. Um, and I think for the, for the LGBT people, I mean, there were so many people who had met me throughout the years who I think were inspired by me. Um, not to pat myself on the back right. too much. We're just like, wow, I can't believe this. You're in rabbinical school and Orthodox rabbinical. That so, means so much to me. And right. Well, I, I think, I mean, not that you're obviously an amazing, lovely person, but it's also what you represent, right? right? It's I your identity was, a lot. And there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of people are like, I didn't, I mean, I didn't sleep for months, but a lot of people told me like who are not related to me or even my best friends or anything like I didn't sleep for right. months. People were very people emotionally People were very emotionally up. shook mm-hmm. and discussions that occurred around it were, you can feel the emotions around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way it came out was so traumatizing like around that and the there there was there was a lot of damage done uh, to a lot of people and you know I represented a constituency and I think what was not taken into consideration was that 
I was really there not just representing myself. I, in rabbinical school, I was there representing a lot of people. And that was this was not a local ins- uh, decision that would... I don't know, the feeling I got at the time was that this was like a no big deal, like... They like like it was it was presented in such a, like this is a we we made a decision that's probably gonna suck for your life but is is like not like this isn't like an earth shattering decision we're making I don't think they anticipated either the repercussions the repercussions that would come out of that so so how has that affected the way that you think about these organizations and this movement like how has that impacted the way you think about it I, I think we we all need to be. Uh, very <laughs> more thoughtful about <laughs> what's going on. Um, I I would hope that people learn, so- at the very least, people learn something from my story, um, and that we're more thoughtful in the future about how how these issues, like they don't ever affect just one person. And there's been so many controversies over the years um, around LGBT stuff, and it's like they add up, and mm-hmm. and like yeah, it's it's not. It's not just one person. And I'll say to the, you asked about, you know, different denominations. I always wish the non-Orthodox world was a little bit more of an ally to Orthodox LGBT people. Mm. That's something that's always gotten to me. I think there's a sense of like, this isn't our community. This isn't our issue. We don't want to get involved. And there were some people, as I mentioned, very much did get involved and, and were supportive. But on an institutional level, and, and a lot of rabbis, non-Orthodox rabbis, I think just want to don't want to touch Orthodoxy, and I would like to see a little bit more responsibility towards our their siblings, LGBT mm-hmm. siblings in the Orthodox world. Not everyone there chose to be there. Some people are stuck there in the Orthodox mm-hmm. world, and some people are there for whatever reason, and mm-hmm. you know they need help. <laughs> Something you mentioned before was, uh, you know, this just communal conception of the difference between what a rabbi is supposed to be and what a regular person or a lay person is supposed to be, even though according to Jewish law, the laws are the same, the halacha is the same for both. I'm curious how how you see the difference when it comes to this issue. Is there a difference? Is there a difference in the way that you think the Orthodox community should relate or accept or embrace LGBTQ people as lay people or as rabbis, you know? Yeah, it's it's a really important question, and I totally believe that smicha ordination is not the same as a master's or a PhD mm-hmm. degree. Um, there's a real personal and spiritual component. I mean, I'm as a rabbi, you, I represent both the people, like Jewish people, and God in many ways, the Torah, and that's smicha is not. You can't just pass a test; it has to be conferred from one rabbi to the next i mean the since moshe maybe with a little break in between a couple of hiccups um, but like going all the way back so there is a personal component and i think it's totally fair that to expect our rabbis to Mm -hmm. you know act in ways that are morally and ethically and personally to to a high answering to a higher standard, mm-hmm. if you will, or holding them to a higher standard. Yeah, yeah. I think you know you like hold me to a higher standard. Like I'm a public figure as a rabbi. Mm-hmm. I'm a figure representing the Jewish people and representing the Torah. I think that's totally fair game. Um, and when it comes to like LGBT issues, a lot of this work just has not been done. Right. Even like the great Gedolim, the great Torah scholars. 
I think there hasn't been a lot of time spent, and this goes back where I talked about the pastoral versus the scholarly work, the morning Seder, the learning of the Torah. Mm -hmm. A lot of the discussions and articles I see are on a are on a sociological level or a pastoral level, and I'm just not seeing the chuvot, the halachic responsum, the books that are loaded with sources instead of stories, and stories are important. Um, you know, so there was a, a synagogue recently invited me to come speak about, I get this to a lot of these scholar-in-residence gigs, if anyone's looking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We'll put your contact uh, <laughs> info. <laughs> and they said, oh, we'd love to hear your story. And I said, I'm happy to tell my story, but I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, right. so like, I want to teach mm. sources as well, and I think it's important that people hear from me teach sources mm -hmm. and not just hear my story, um, even though that's not what we're doing now, but I don't know if that's <laughs> what the listeners are that interested. We'll do a part if you want to present some sources, <laughs> our audience yeah. would love to hear that. Um, and something my, my, ordain, my ordainee, um, the one who ordained me, <laughs> Rabbi Landis. Ordainer? <laughs> yeah, the Rabbi Landis, when he, he, when he ordained me, he wrote an article about it. And something he told me and something he wrote about uh, was very much that the reason I'm ordaining Daniel Atwood is because I think he needs to do the work. He said, like, the answers aren't all there. Like, we haven't worked out mm -hmm. all the answers on these issues yet. Um, but I'm hoping that Daniel Atwood could be, as a person who has direct experience with it, and I think there are a lot of sources that you just don't see in the same way when it affects you personally. And I feel the same way about female rabbis and, you know, trans rabbis, rabbis mm -hmm. of all different abilities, all types of things. Um, he said, like, d we need gay rabbis so we can figure out the answers to a lot of these questions. And that's something I... You've taken I on that responsibility? Too. I mean, it's a, it's a big responsibility. Yeah. Are you planning on, on writing or are you already in the process I've of writing? Yeah, I've published a couple things. Meaning and specifically Torah, the, like chuvas or anything like that, dealing with these complicated I, I, issues. I love chuvas. I... I've, I <laughs> I've, I have I have published a, a couple and and I hope to publish more. Um, you know I, I have a great job yeah, now. And, you're a little busy, and uh, you know it's hard to find the I, the time. And I definitely have enough material to write something. It's it's sort of a matter of uh, finding, but I'll find the time. And yeah, yeah, I do hope to be involved with that. So I guess on that particular note, I, I think for me. One of the reasons why I most wanted uh, to speak with you and one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on the show, not only uh, to talk about your story, but to talk specifically about more sort of big picture ideas. Because one of the things that I struggled with, and I think we, Uri and I vocally struggled with on the show in talking about your, your episode, was about what, what parameters should a rabbinical school set for its students? Because as you just mentioned, I, I think I agree with this as well. It's not, you know, an engineering degree, right? It's not a psychology PhD, right? There's something special about smicha. So when a rabbinical school, and maybe there are other issues uh, for your situation um, that, that make this a little bit different, but just to talk about um, sort of hypothetically, Rabbi Atwood, you have the funds, you have the building, you are setting up a uh, an Orthodox yeshiva, you're going to be or able to ordain people. Congratulations. That's huge. It's a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you're deciding sort of parameters and you're saying, okay, you know what? These people are kind of beyond the pale. What, if any, are the limits? And I said that um, 
I want to put that in two categories. One of them is about uh, halacha, about Jewish law, right? Are there people who, you know, they are not acting according to the way we see the appropriate laws, so therefore they are out of bounds? And the other one is about hashkafa, is about philosophy. And that could also be related to Jewish law, but it's a little bit different, right? So these people are just have, have philosophies that are out of bounds with what we believe is appropriate for an Orthodox yeshiva, and therefore they are not allowed to either come in or they're not allowed to get smicha from us if we find out halfway through, right? Are there limits? And what would those limits look like? Yeah, I mean, this is also one reason I'm not so invested in the term orthodoxy anymore mm-hmm. is that if something's a good idea, but it's not orthodox, like that's not something that interests me, but I know it is for a lot of people. And you know, what's interesting about that question is it's always asked, uh, like, what's the thing that's too liberal, too left-wing for our school to tolerate? And I never see it asked the other way, especially when you think of an institution like Chobavei Torah, which prides itself on being, you know, it's not YU, it sort of not officially, but sort of broke off from YU as an alternative, more liberal, more open approach. You know, why I never hear it asked, you know, what what is too right-wing for Chovave to All right, well, handle? we're doing it right now. Well, I mean, <laughs> it was interesting. My I think it was my first year there. There was a group called the Chovave 11. It was 11 students. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 11 graduates of Chovave. One of them actually happened to be a board member of Chovave who wrote an open letter condemning Chovave over their, um, it had to do with their not coming down hard enough against biblical criticism and accepting partnership right. minions, which actually the Rosh Hashiva at the time and a few of, I think all of the Rebbeim actually, um, openly attended uh, partnership minions. Um and there were 11 graduates who were just said, like, no, like, we don't accept this. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were not kicked out of the Chovave world. The Chovave did not condemn them. One of them, uh, Rabbi Chai Posner, was actually on the board of YCT when he published that letter, uh, which is astonishing to think about. Um, and I was sort of shocked. Like, I thought this was the liberal you know, place where we're accepting of these things and, and our Rosh Hashiva goes to partnership minion. Like, how can we just have someone who is so openly opposed to it? So, well, it sounds like what, so it sounds, just to understand, it sounds like what you're saying is Chovave so, is I mean, more I'm comfortable in the your, right-wing direction and I'm you just, were wondering I never, why. I never saw, like, you know, would someone ever be too homophobic for Chovave? Would someone ever be too sexist for COVID? I, I would ho- certainly hope so. And certainly I think if someone was saying things that were openly outrageous, they would be. Um, but what about on a halachic or personal level, taking positions that are out of, st- out of step with the more liberal Orthodox community? So I'm not, ge- I know I didn't give specific answers to your questions. It's, it's sort of hard to answer. I think answer. that's interesting. No, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that ma- that's a very good point, Daniel. And I think it's true to think about making sure that there were being conscious and being fair in every direction. And I actually think it's really admirable that Chobave is more open to right wing positions that they don't necessarily, or maybe not every single person in the leadership necessarily agrees with, but they're open to that conversation. Um, but I think you're totally right that this needs to be sort of equitable, and it needs to be we are open minded to positions we're a little bit uncomfortable with on all sides of the spectrum. But I'm still wondering, right? And I'm not trying to push you, but I'm still wondering, like, what do you see as out of bounds? Are there things that are out of bounds? And I totally with you. And I think I kind of agree that like sometimes these terms can be not useful. But like Rabbi Linzer, 
and hope they think they're useful, right? And well, Rifki, maybe give some examples, and he'll tell you yeah, if he sure. it's out like, of bounds or not. So, so let's use let's use hashkafic things, right, as a litmus test, right? Let's say I um, totally believe that God exists, but like had nothing to do with writing a Torah. Okay, the Torah was written by people, and there's a lot of beauty in the Torah, and I think it's really meaningful, and I think it's inspirational, but I don't believe that God wrote it. Is that out of bounds? Yeah, these are these are t- these are the tough questions, right? Because I, I see, like, I see that as like a question we definitely like we need to be talking about because it's like it's an important question, right. and I'm also very like open to opinions. I mean, what does um, out of bounds mean? Out of bounds like, of conversation, out of bounds of pulpit speeches. Like, but like if someone's publicly taking that position, I mean... I'm wondering listen, like if... What's going to be for Nair Yisrael is different for YU, is different for Chavain. Right. I think you, a rabbi in some ways, represents the people. So right. you can't be too far ahead of right. people. So you need to represent someone. And uh, okay, uh, if that's not an accept... It's really not... Yeah, I think where we are as a community again, correct me if I'm wrong, is like, it's okay to talk about that topic, but it's not really okay right. as a, a position you can stake right. yourself in. I in also the think COVID, a lot in of the Orthodox people world. in the Orthodox community are comfortable saying or thinking certain things, but don't want their rabbi to say or think those things. Mm-hmm. Like another example yeah. I was thinking of in a much more practical halachic thing is I think that to a certain extent, there's this underground world of people living with their fiancés for a month or two before they get married or people who you know are looking for serious relationships but are also very comfortable with like you know random hookups and you know things like that right um i let's say there were a rabbi who were interviewing to come to your yeshiva daniel uh he's you know he's in his last year or she you know (laughs) they're in their last (laughs) year of uh (laughs) of university and they're looking to go to rabbinical school and you heard just, you know, stomp that they are living with their partner. Is that out of bounds? I mean, I, I would hope to not also not be making decisions based on hearsay. Right. Um, or they, they're an idiot. They know, mention it in their Because according to the, like the Chovave student handbook, it's a, it was, it's prohibited to live with someone of the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did that mean for me as someone who was not ever right. living with her, right? So I have no idea. <laughs> um, and according, like, I wonder I li- if they updated the handbook. Uh, they pr- probably did not. <laughs> um, but there were students who lived in like Moisha houses right. that were co-ed. Um, like there were like these uh, exceptions around the edges, and uh, you know, I, I think that, that's a, that's a t- because yeah, I mean, like, where are we? It's sort of like having to read the pulse of the community where we're at in that issue. I mean, I think I would want to probe a little bit more, like why they're living together, what's the situation. For queer couples, it's very much like getting married is so difficult. It often requires sacrifices, family, a lot of difficult things. So that's the reason I think a lot of queer couples are comfortable living together because marriage is like it's a happy thing but it's a difficult thing yeah um yeah i know, I know you want my like I maybe this is why i'm not a rosh yeshiva it's, it, but also, these are tough daniel, questions daniel i'm gonna be real like i don't know the answer to any of these questions yeah. like i'm not asking you because i'm like oh you have to have the answer i'm more asking you because i'm like i think this is something that we're all trying to figure yeah. out like i think yeah. a lot of people and and i i say this because i to a certain extent i'm one of them like a lot of people heard your situation and were like in really like 
were really like stricken and were really like, this is so incredibly difficult. And like, I can't even imagine what Daniel's going through. On the other hand, like, I kind of hear, like, they need to have some sort of limits. Like, did Daniel cross that line? Like, I don't know if that's where I would put the line. Where would I put the line? Where's the right right place to put the line? And, like, it kind of starts that cycle. And I think, like, no one knows the answer. Luckily, I don't have to have an answer. I don't have rabbinical school. But, like, I think it's a really tough question, both in terms of, again, hashkafa and in terms of, of, you know, practical on the ground law stuff. But I don't know. I was, I was wondering if you had some sort of like secret magic guidance, but you're, you're like the rest of us. Maybe this is why I'm not a, a, a a Rosh Hashifa or or president of rabbinical (laughs) school. I mean, listen, they're allowed to have their lines and uh, they're allowed to be held account to account. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Daniel, I'm curious to ask you if you don't mind, I'm curious about what your wedding was like. Um, a, like the specifics of, of how you guys did it um, in terms of tradition and ritual, and also maybe more broadly how you envision, um, let's not use the word orthodox, but let's just say religious um, gay marriages. Yeah, I heard the food was very good, but I did not eat anything. <laughs> really? That whole day. Oh, I know, it was such a that. mistake. Oh. Advice to anyone getting married soon, save some food. <laughs> um Oh, so you want to know about the... I'm curious uh, if you want to share. Those aspects of my (laughs) wedding. Sorry, I had to. Um, I would say our wedding was one that was not... It was both not not non-halachic and not anti-halachic. We didn't do any... We made sure not to do anything that was... That we believed, along with our rabbi, um, against halacha, and also not just a secular ceremony that didn't reflect Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you want to get, I mean, we had a tish, we did a, it was like a bedekin where we put taluses on each other. It was very adorable. <laughs> um, we did a chuppah. Um, what we did is we took a neder of a vow to each other mm-hmm. to be exclusive partners and to build a house together um a vow that we see as halakhically binding um did you have um did you have something like did you have a, a model for that netter or did you create so we that we, we uh we spoke i i mean there some of these have been done in the past so we weren't starting from scratch we weren't the first you know same-sex wedding in the Orthodox world. Um, Rabbi Steve Greenberg did a lot of work on this, and we consulted with some experts. Mm-hmm. There aren't actually many experts on the topic of vows, but there are a few that we consulted <laughs> with. I don't know if they want to be named, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to name them. Um, but we took, and we see that as a as a halakhically binding thing, and you know, we, we and we figured out how to do different things. We we did not do sheva brachot because mm-hmm. we felt that would be anti-halachic, mm-hmm. um, although I, I really don't want to pass any judgment against anyone who does right. a different thing. Um, it, it's it's what's really, we we did other bracha, we did a shachianu, and then um, uh, I remember a tova hametiv, um, if you, we used why, like, and we signed a document as right. well that was a star shutafuta partnership document that in many ways mirrored a ketubah. Uh, but we not call it tuba and did not have the same language as the tuba. Um, so you replaced a lot of the traditional right. rituals with right. other Jewish rituals. We, that were I would just say not it was it was what's fu- what's actually really fun about it is 
you get to really tease out what the important right. parts are and be creative. Right. To a certain extent, it actually reminds me of the conversation we were having with, with Rabbi Ben Greenfield last week about um, taking Jewish ritual, searching for the underlying yeah. values in those rituals, and then using those values. And it looks a little somewhat different, but it's yeah. incorporating the same I'm values. I'm sure Rabbi, I mean, I don't want to get him in trouble. I don't know what his <laughs> opinions are, but I'm sure he would be really interested in creating a gay wedding because you get to really do that. Um, right. Yeah. It's a, it was a, it was a fun process. Like I enjoyed it as a, as a rabbi, never like getting married as a rabbi. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah. And, and it was also really important to me that our ceremony not be a secular ceremony mm-hmm. that there be, that's why I wanted that neder, that right. something to have halachic weight to it. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And I, I guess I've heard different things, different ways that people do um, their wedding. It's obviously not simple, but I uh, appreciate the way you uh, chose to do it. Yeah, you clearly put a lot of like emotional work and like actual like studying to figure out that the best way to create this ritual for yourselves. And it sounds really beautiful. Yeah. And Mazel Tov, by the way. Thank Sorry, we, we're ending with that, but absolutely thank Mazel Tov. Thank you. Well, Daniel, thank you so, so much for chatting with us and for sure. being on the show. Um, especially, you know, I know you went through something incredibly painful, but thank you for, for kind of for sharing your story with us and with the with the listeners, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for, for having me on. I guess if there were one message I would leave with is that we have a lot of work to do mm-hmm. um, as a community, as individuals, and a lot of the answers are just like haven't been worked out. Mm-hmm. And well, probably soon. Get to, a few like, months. We got, we got we got, we got stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate the yeah, absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. And of course, as usual, the conversation does not end with the three of us. The conversation is with all of you, the listeners. Please, please, please be in touch with us. Join the conversation on our Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast, and shoot us an email, Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Drive-In Productions. They are the sponsor of this week's episode. And thank you to Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade. When Daniel walked in to the studio, he asked where the band was. If they play the song live every week. Unfortunately, we they had to do. tell him that they do not. They're so busy. But, They're so busy. Yeah, we use a recording. Too many gigs. But right. thank you to them, as always. All right. Bye, everyone. Zeigesund. Zeigesund.